0: You are listening to Sick Biz Buzz with me, Hillary Jastrom. Hi, welcome to Sick Biz Buzz, the sickest podcast for sick and disabled entrepreneurs and the only podcast of its kind. We're deeply connected to SickBiz.com, deeply connected. We are a part of SickBiz.com, a direct offshoot, the global resource for chronically ill and disabled entrepreneurs. Today, I am super excited to welcome... Kara Khan. Kara Khan is a wondrous woman who is absolutely reinventing herself through her disease, which we will get into in just a moment to give you some of the highlights. She is now finding her purpose through healing through horses at Chastain Park, which serves adults and kids through horse therapy. She has created a movie about traveling across the Grand Canyon in the midst of her disability, bringing awareness and hope to other people. And there are so many other things that we're going to talk about today. So please welcome the beautiful Princess Rising, Kara Khan. Kara, hi. Thank you so much for joining us today on Sick is buzz the sickest podcast for entrepreneurs who are chronically ill or disabled we are so excited to have you on and um you know it's kind of funny how i found you through the mighty and through your article that you wrote about painting your walker gold and then i was on like this mad quest to find you because i i just knew that you could help our very special Uh, demographic of entrepreneurs. So welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Hilary. It's a pleasure. Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, in doing research about you, I was running out of room. I mean, you have accomplished so much. Your focus has switched uh, a number of times, and uh, I was surprised to find out that you started in the corporate world. You started at Dell, and then you moved to UNICEF. Well, actually, before that,
1: I was with the United Nations with the World Food Program in Ecuador, which is the food aid agency of the UN and a sister agency to UNICEF.
0: Oh, my goodness. So then you moved to Dell after Mm -hmm. that. That's a big switch, though. What precipitated
1: that? In all honesty, it was a dare to myself to see if I could get the job. What had happened was, although I was stationed in Ecuador with WFP, they had asked me to go to the regional office in Panama for a month to help with a partnership with a regional airline at the time. And in the hotel that I was living in on the waterfront, there was a huge group of Dell employees that had come up to set come to Panama from the US to set up this new call center. Which at its height I think was about 2,000 people, and every day I come in for my morning bike ride. This is pre-diagnosis, and um, see them in their Dell shirts, say good morning in the breakfast line, all disgusting and sweaty. You know, not (laughs) not in the proper attire or uh, looking presentable for a job interview. And on the last day, uh, so again after a month, the guy who sort of seemed to be the head honcho approached me in this breakfast line and said, "Hey." You know, how are you? Introduce himself. He said, What do you do? I said, I do corporate fundraising for the World Food Program. He gave me his card and he said, Well, you know, we're recruiting in Panama. If you have Panamanian employees who might be interested. And then the chat went on, you know, unbeknownst to me, that really it was like uh, an interview. He was their head recruiter. And I sent an email in giving some names of Panamanians that I know, you know, and all I'm thinking is, How am I going to hit them up for a donation? And uh, he said, hey, we would like to interview you for the position of um, senior manager for corporate communications and government relations. And I thought it was a joke. I mean, (laughs) I had no corporate experience. I'd studied international development in college. I mean, always been focused on working into the United Nations since I was a little girl. And what was interesting is, is that I, I have five interviews in Panama and another Four in Austin, Texas is very rigorous. I wanted to prove to myself that I had what it took to make it in a Fortune 50 company. I mean, at that time, Dell was the number one Fortune company in the world. And interestingly, in the interviews, uh, the last interview was the hardest. It was the man who was to be my future boss, an incredible human being, Mr. John Hood. He was the vice president of Dell Panama. He thought the interview was a hoax that they had brought in some pretty girl who <laughs> <laughs> had lived in the region. And his questions were so absurd that I had to, you know, he wasn't taking it seriously, thinking he was a hoax. And I, I told him, I said, I apologize. I'm not prepared to answer such technical questions. Um, and we both walked out of the room sort of going, huh, that was weird. But lo and behold, I did accept the job. And we were people, 155 people when I enjoy, joined and went up to 2,000. And my role was to really be a bridge between corporate America and these 2,000 Panamanian employees who we had working on the site who were serving markets all over the world.
0: So a little bit of a veer, but not as much as it would seem then because you were still working for the people in some capacity, but a little bit of a different uh, calling. But you did then go back to UNICEF. I did. And and it's
1: interesting that you say that because in the interview, he said, you have no corporate experience. What makes you think that you're appropriate for this job? I said, look, you and I both generate revenue in our day-to-day jobs. The difference is, is that you're giving your money to shareholders and I'm giving my money back to help children dying of hunger. Mm -hmm. And so there was that parallel. But when the tsunami hit, and, and I was always missing what was happening in the international world. Um, I knew that I wanted to go back to the UN. So actually, before I joined UNICEF on my first post in Angola in 2007, I was applying to go to graduate school. And it was also at the same time when I was going through the test to be diagnosed um, for my condition. It was at that time, the same time that I had a very slight stub. It was like walking, like having a stub toe you know, limping very slightly. And so there was a lot of going on, a lot happening at that time, but yes, it was very much turning the wheel going back towards the United Nations was my goal. And I was very lucky to be able to do that.
0: So you have this calling, you have this calling to serve people and you continue to serve people today, um, through your charity, through horse therapy and, um, it just seems like this is such an integral part of who you are, that you must always be giving back. But can you tell us, we've heard of horse therapy. I'm going to just say the layperson has heard of horse therapy, but a lot of us don't know what that entails. Sure.
1: Um, there's actually different types of horse therapy and it is phenomenal. Mo- a lot of people don't understand how Working with horses, and that can be mounted or unmounted, so you don't necessarily have to ride the horse, can be such a beneficial experience, not only for people with physical, intellectual, cognitive, emotional impairments, but also for people who might have experienced trauma, anxiety, depression, mental health issues, or things like malnutrition or developmental delays that can be related to poverty Um, or other conditions and there are two different types. The type of horse riding that I engage with is called therapeutic riding which another word for it would be adaptive riding. It's where a person with a disability Um, and really any type is not only is, is receiving therapy, but they're actually learning horsemanship skills. You are learning to ride a horse. And obviously in my case, for example, I don't have inner thigh muscles or hamstring muscles or calf muscles. And so where we, where a rider who doesn't have an impairment would very much use that leg strength to guide the horse. I am taught alternative techniques in how to guide the horse, lead the horse, go, stop, trot, et cetera. Um, In addition, in this therapeutic riding, um, we work on on exercises, core skills, balancing, um, concentrating, receiving commands. And depending on the person's conditions, the certified therapeutic instructors will adapt the lesson accordingly. So not only am I having a fabulous time every time I'm on the horse, I'm having an amazing workout which really works well for someone like me who doesn't do well in a clinical setting with a regular physical therapist or PT. The other type of therapeutic horsemanship is called hippotherapy. And hippotherapy is actually conducted by a physical therapist, PT, a speech pathologist, or an occupational therapist, an OT. And it's where they use the horse as the medium for the therapy for the person with a diagnosis. And what is interesting about hippotherapy is is that what's not absolutely obvious by just watching is that the therapist will, for example, be teaching a child hand-eye coordination and how to give commands uh, to the horse, when, in fact, that is then translated and trying to help a child, for example, learn how to eat independently at home or to develop their speech skills in school. And it's really fascinating. Um, the the techniques that are used, the patients, obviously, that the therapists have. And from a child's perspective, they're, again, just having an incredible time on a horse. And often so, the positive energy of the entire experience can even be more therapeutic than a traditional clinical setting. And then lastly, um, therapeutic riding is also used in outreach groups, as mentioned, for people who don't necessarily have a diagnosis of a, what is sometimes is ranked as a physical or intellectual disability but we know that mental health issues such as anxiety and depression uh, schizophrenia they also benefit from outreach groups through therapeutic riding and this is here in atlanta at chastain horse park where i've been riding since 2014 and also work part-time as the new development director
0: Oh, that's amazing! And I'm just very impressed with you because I did go horseback riding once, <laughs> and the horse started to trot, and the only thing I could do was say "stop, stop, 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 stop" or "whoa, whoa, whoa," and it wasn't uh, pleasant. And it was, <laughs> and he wasn't even going that fast. But um, I think it's amazing, and in particular when you talk about helping children. Because children are so resistant sometimes to just more of a clinical setting or even maybe it's not resistance, but it's fear. There's a lot of fear that goes into this is different. It smells weird here. It looks weird. So I love that it's almost kind of like a sneaky therapy but that they don't even know um, they're learning or they're improving. And that's that's incredible.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the other things that is is very powerful about therapeutic horse riding is the necessity, absolute necessity to be mindful of where you are and what you're doing. I mean, you're sitting on top of a thousand pound, 1200 pound animal. And while horses are enormous, they are sensitive creatures. They will very much be able to sense the energy and the the emotion of their rider. And in one case, that helps the horse, you know, maybe shift their hips a little if they feel like they're losing their rider, their rider's losing balance. But for a person as well, they will actually emotionally connect with the horse. Horses are quite calm, especially those that are chosen to do this this type of work. And so that relationship, that healing power of horses is something that really can't be replicated anywhere else. And it's not only for the children we serve, but you can imagine the joy that the parents feel when they see their children thriving, when they see their children having fun, being in a safe and inclusive environment where they, for one moment, are don't have to be on. You know, they get a break themselves. And And I think as important as it is to serve children and people with disabilities, we always have to keep in mind the caregivers and the community of people who are there day in and day out, trying to help them be the best that they can be and offer opportunities for them to thrive and reach their fullest potential as they can themselves. So I really love that community aspect and the family aspect uh, that comes with therapeutic horseman riding.
0: It's so important to give those parents a break. Uh, that's an excellent insight. I think it's just to, um, they can be so exhausted, and as you termed it, being being on, being on, always having the energy, always having the positivity, and not being able to be a little vulnerable in their moment. Um, you know, and so your love of horses, because it's very clear that you love them. That they're sensitive animals, and they're they're majestic. And they're miraculous at the same time when you feel the muscles move underneath mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. You know, this giant creature that could be so gentle. So, you, shifting gears here to go into talking about your movie, H I B M. You were on a horse mm-hmm. and you traveled across the Grand Canyon. We're actually in preparation for it for next spring. Oh, you're in preparation. Okay, because I saw it said April 2017. And then because I know you, I thought, well, did I get this wrong? So let's talk about your movie, though. H-I-B-M is the acronym for the disease that affects you. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yes, yeah, so HIBM stands for Hereditary Inclusion Body Myopathy. This is a rare type of muscular dystrophy that's onset is typically in adulthood, but we see patients as young as 19 up to patients in their 50s who start to show symptoms. It is caused by a genetic mutation of the GNE gene, and it is recessive, meaning that you must receive a copy from your father and from your mother in order for you to potentially be um, Uh, have the disease of which for every child, there's a 50% chance and my brother doesn't have it. HIVM is a very rare muscle wasting disease that affects all of your skeletal muscles from head to toe, with the exception of your quadriceps. Your skeletal muscles are those muscles that you use for movement. So your quads, your hamstrings, your inner thighs, your outer thighs, your back muscles, shoulders, neck, even the face muscles. You know, when you're talking, you're using skeletal muscles to move. It also affects the muscles that are around your heart and your lungs. And while it in itself, with it's progression prognosis is, is not terminal, when the heart or the lungs are affected because of the skeletal muscles around them weakening, or say the muscles in the neck and the mid neck might collapse and therefore you would suffocate, that is when there can be you see the really dark, dark, dark side of the disease. To date, there is no approved treatment or cure for HIBM, and it typically leads to severe incapacity within 10 to 15 years of its onset. I was diagnosed at the age of 30 in the prime of my life, a time when I was hoping to have my own kids. I was a very active and avid Latin dancer, uh, loved salsa, merengue, bachata, cumbia. So it, was, it was amazing to spend the first five years of my career in South America. I also, I was actually, when we look back, though, about 24, 25, when there were those first falls, the inexplicable um, uh, limping and not knowing what was going on. But the diagnosis came at 30, which is now almost uh, 11 years. I am 40, about to turn uh, 41. And honestly, I don't think I took it very seriously in the sense that when a doctor tells you of such a devastating prognosis and that your United Nations international career is over that you should really stay home with your parents. My parents live in Shanghai, China, uh, you know, that you should be prepared for what is coming. And that typically is a wheelchair and some patients bedridden. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine. I, I didn't conceive that that was me. And honestly, to this day, even though now I use a walker and, and leg braces after, you know, what, gosh, 16 years of its onset, I still don't see that as my future because I'm so focused on living life to the fullest today. But I would be, I'm very proud to be a woman living with a disability. This very much came, I would say, into my heart because it was stuck in my head for so long when I was 35. And at 35, I was with UNICEF. I had already worked in five different countries around the world, Angola, I was there for two years, uh, China after the Sichuan earthquake emergency, Madagascar, Mozambique, Thailand, um, and the Haiti earthquake, the 2010 devastating Haiti earthquake hit. And I was asked to go and serve in the operation. You can imagine going through my mind. It was one thing to take away my dancing or my ability to have children, but nothing threatens my career. I have worked so hard for this career knowing I want to work for the United Nations, serve children since I was six years old and clear on UNICEF since the age of 12. It really worried me. And I wrote, I did it, went after they, after they offered the job because, you know, you still think, well, even though there are laws in place, I'll be discriminated against. They'll find some excuse to say that because of my impairment, I'm not fit for the job. And I asked them, is are there any, parameters or restrictions around someone with a severe incapacity working in an emergency zone and a, the response at the time was we don't know and so their increase began but luckily UNICEF the United Nations Children's Fund which is a UN agency had a hollering prior, me hiring policy that was issued by the executive director Tony Lake that protected the rights of staff with disabilities and thanks to him and the determination of the team in Haiti I, I got to go and I spent two years there and Two of the best years of my life, because not only was I able to serve children in desperate need and mothers in Haiti uh, recovering from that earthquake as a a corporate fundraiser, the agency uh, named me the Disability Focal Point for UNICEF Haiti. And that just opened my world to amazing human beings, to new ways of learning about laws and programs and policies and budgeting. And what does it take to make this world inclusive? and to include people of all abilities. So it's just been, it's been great. I mean, it's why I'm here today. It's how I met my husband. It's it's wonderful.
0: So it did open your eyes, too, because it's it's done the same thing for me. As a person, I call them wellies, well people. Mm-hmm. But walking around and you're healthy and you're really not feeling so much in the moment with other people who might have a disease or disability, Um Until it's you, until it's you in the wheelchair, until it's you with the walker, until it's you living visibly and publicly. Mm -hmm. And then we start to notice, I can't park here. Um, There's no elevator access. And it's not that it's these structural pieces that are so frustrating or lack thereof. It is the fact that you talk about the exclusivity. Mm -hmm. We are not a society that first and foremost opens our arms to include everybody. We don't go that deep naturally with our compassion. So I can't even imagine how much joy that would bring you to serve with children. And uh, did you feel like, okay, this is all right because my journey, my calling, my mission may end at some point um, through lack of my own control, but I can do this now and I can check this box. Actually,
1: I've never had the thought that my journey would end. I've always felt that no matter how far the disease progresses, I'll have something to contribute. Um, Thanks to technology and the advancements in technology. I mean, the ability to communicate, whether that's through just my voice, still having my voice or eye recognition or computers it's something that is. This is a life lifetime calling for me. This is, you know, I was asked once, "What do I want my legacy to be?" And it's. I don't even think it's something that I, I. I have to think about and and pinpoint and work towards. It's it's who I am and how I live my life, and that is service. And I think that it's even more profound not only that exclusivity in physical spaces. But in the the workplace, but for me, it went to an even deeper level in my relationships. It was a process for my family, for my parents, my father, especially who blames himself for me having this disease, to embrace the word disability, to be okay with living a life in the face of the adversity with very real daily struggles. And, and, and dating, my goodness, you know, you are not seen as marriage material, whether that's by, because of traditional traditions and cultures or taboos related to having a disability. But I mean, good, it's, it's such a facade, especially in today's day and age of online dating of image, 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 and everyone sort of just wants to check off the boxes. And can you imagine, you know, wobbling into a date on a walker? How no. do you explain that one? And, and they want to make a joke that it's some, you know, sexy ski skiing accident or something.
0: <laughs> no, They're
1: I get away from the 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 visible, what's in front of you, and people having put limitations on you. When your vulnerability is there, out in the open for everyone to see, and somehow you have to find the strength in that struggle to use that vulnerability as your greatest shield and source of courage.
0: And you, so you have found greater empowerment and I have as well, because when I got sick, it was very public. Um, I was working for a a large regional furniture company and my, my illness transverse myelitis is very visible in terms of at that point it was because I was in uh, my first flare and, uh, I couldn't walk down the hallways. So I'd grab onto people drifting by and it didn't even occur to me to ask them, can I take your arm? I would just grab it uh, because I needed it. And I needed, you know, I think we needed that inclusion and human comfort and all of those things. Um, so I understand what you're saying from that perspective. But then from the relationship perspective, um, I was engaged at the time and um I can't even imagine. I mean, it was difficult enough to be engaged and to have, you know, made that commitment to move forward with somebody that was very difficult. And I pushed my now husband away because I thought I was condemning him, you know, to this life of being an octogenarian, uh, sipping on insurer and watching game shows. You <laughs> know, It was like, you know, our life is over. So I can't imagine. And I don't have that perspective now. Um, mm-hmm. You know the disease is as much as it makes you vulnerable can empower you, and that is exactly the reason that I started this nonprofit organization uh, and the reason that I reached out to you. You're doing some amazing things to change the perception of quote unquote disability. It's um, it's more, it's something that is not greatly embraced. It's something that is seen as a negative when somebody says, oh, you know, I'm paralyzed now or, oh, I have this disease. I'm not going to die, but I'm going to walk differently now. The first reaction is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, And then the friends kind of drift away sometimes and new ones come in that you've never even met before and it surprises you. But. What you're doing is living out loud, most definitely. You painted your Walker gold, yeah, uh, Cleopatra. So uh, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, and then you wrote about it, which was really, really cool, and how it changed the way people received you when mm-hmm. you were out shopping on the street, etc., Are you still there with me, Kara? Yeah, Cara?
1: still here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, as mentioned, I've sort of, I, like I said, I don't know why, but I'm so grateful. I don't get depressed about my condition or what the future may hold. And a lot of that has to do with, I need all the energy that I have to focus on today. And I'm not saying that taking on the first brace or the second leg brace or the, especially the walker, you know, I took on the walker when I was 36 years old. And when it was first suggested to me in a PT setting, in a clinic setting, I was like, hell no, uh-uh. <laughs> you know, there's, there's just, I'm not ready for it. I'm not emotionally ready for it. But when I think really by 2015, I was like, you know what, this is my life. And it's like having a sibling who drives you insane. You're stuck with them. So you know what? Give them a name, make them a part of the family. And yeah, my, this is my gold walker. She's Cleopatra. Um, She's my chariot, and 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 she she took over from my Lamborghini, Rhett Butler, and it just people see and they're like, wow. And it, so I live in the South, right? So it's like, damn, girl, or you know, <laughs> some lovely Southern twang or a country to it. Um, Atlanta is a city that I where I experience kindness every day, but I really love the way that the walker sort of starts the conversation with humor. With a po- it has a positive connotation. Um, it's something fun to talk about. And it gives me the ability to engage with people. And I stop and talk with every single person who makes a comment. Why? Because it is the opportunity to shatter stigma when it comes to engaging with people with disabilities. I mean, any of us who have a visible impairment know what it's like, because we know when people are staring at me, it's like, hello, I can see you looking at me. And it's not (laughs) that it's always out of spite or mean, you know, it's Mm -hmm. they're curious, they want to know what's happened to you. And if they're a doctor or, you know, some sort of technician, they might be like, hmm, I wonder if I have something that could help them. But the general public are just curious, because you do not see that many people with disabilities, considering that we're what, 10 to 15% of any population around the world. You don't see 10 to 15% of a crowd at a concert are people with disabilities. You don't see 10 to 15% of the people who are in a shopping mall or in a restaurant are people with disabilities. So we are rep- underrepresented out in, in, in society in general. So if something, and the gold walker, honestly, was totally vain. I love gold. It's my favorite color. The more accessories <laughs> I can have in gold, phenomenal. <laughs> But, yeah, as as it started to open up more and more conversations, and actually even when I first posted the photograph of Cleopatra when she made her debut on Facebook, my goodness, people really like to see someone who can take a not nice situation and find some joy in it. And it was actually painted a gold because I went to Dubai last year in December to speak at um, – A global pediatric conference for the Al Jalila um, Foundation that works with children with disabilities in in Dubai, and I thought, well, goodness, if I'm going to the city of gold, I better look good on stage.
0: (laughs) That's how it came about. Oh, I love it! I love it! I just love hearing all these positive things. And uh, two things struck me as you were talking. One. And I want to put this out there to people who are listening, who may be struggling and feeling vulnerable. You have an opportunity, like she said, and I like to think of it also as we almost have an obligation in a way to further the conversation. If we don't like the landscape that we're looking at, if we don't like the reality of how we're being received, where we park... Uh, what happens when we use, you know, implements or tools to get around? We have a responsibility, even if we're not so crazy about taking it on. Maybe we will be. Maybe we'll be totally enthusiastic and join the conversation, and that's wonderful. But the reality is, sometimes people aren't that crazy about it. But I want to, I want to talk to you about that from the perspective of pain into purpose. Mm-hmm. When you can assign a purpose to your pain for me personally it it just feels a lot less painful it feels a lot more like this is the clarity this is what i'm supposed to be doing yeah and i really think that comes with first
1: redefining what it is to be vulnerable vulnerable Mm -hmm. is not synonymous with weakness and if you can find feel good when you're vulnerable and, and relate this to the moment, some of the most precious moments in your life, maybe when you, you you're with your partner and some of those most intimate, fabulous moments are when you're at your most vulnerable or with a parent. I mean, I'm 40 years old and my father walks in the room and I melt. I am at my most vulnerable state because I know everything's going to be OK because daddy's here. You know, in your vulnerability, you allow someone to come into your life and share and experience your struggle and experience your pain. And while they will never know what it is to be in constant chronic pain, the e- exhausting emotional um, experiences and drain that we go through on a day-to-day just trying to get things done or, you know, having to go out in public and face sometimes some really nasty situations, you know, it we would say, well, some people might say, like, are you kidding me? I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. And I'm just so upset in this pain. I'm, sw- I'm wallowing in my pain. But think about the disability advocates who wrote the International Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, of the people who drive forward different inclusion campaigns. And their slogan is nothing about us without us. If not you, if not me, well, then who? We don't want people who don't have disabilities deciding what we need. I'm an adult. I know what I need. We don't want people who don't have disabilities deciding what access we should and should not have. And so we need to speak up for ourselves. And if you're waiting for someone to do it for you, it's not enough. You know, we sit and we complain and say there aren't enough benefits. We don't have enough accessible parking. There aren't elevators everywhere I need to go. Why am I not getting a job interview because of X, Y, Z? Why don't we see enough representation of people with disabilities in film, in pop culture, in music, um, in politics, et cetera, et cetera? Because again, if you're waiting for someone else to do it, it's going to be a really, really, really long road. And so again, if we can say that that pain is actually your most powerful perspective to provide the expertise needed to make change. Wow. That's powerful. You know, you are the most qualified. So take that pain and look at it as a gift. Look at it as a a very rich and profound perspective. It is incredibly valuable and put it to good use. And this doesn't mean that you have to go and be the next president of the United States, but go for it. I mean, absolutely but it can be something as simple as having conversations with your friends to help them understand what it's like to live with a disability. They Don't assume that they understand all of the challenges you face. Because you know what, what happens when you allow yourself to share your pain and turn that into purpose? Is you help other people understand. You create awareness. You are breaking down barriers of ignorance. And they, when their lives, when they come across potentially another person with a disability or a situation where they see barriers, they are now informed. You have just empowered someone else through your, your pain and your perspective to be an advocate for our community. And remember, everybody in their life at some point is going to experience some sort of impairment in disability, right? Whether it's temporary or permanent. So you're also giving them a gift to be prepared themselves to have a perspective to maybe how they could use their own pain into purpose.
0: And it's a very special inclusion into this community. When you are someone who is diagnosed or you are someone who has had an accident and you have a chance to speak out and to be a leader and to lead the conversations, to steer them into the direction that they need to go. And what you said too, I'm an adult, I know what I need. You know, most of the time when people speak up for us and they say, "Kara needs this, you're going to go, wait, wait, wait a minute. I can tell you what I need. Because first of all, you might not get it right. And second of all, it's important to me to speak up for myself. So I love spinning that. I love to spin on that. I think it's really important. Um, And we talk about people who just can't seem to come up from being so immersed in their pain. Mm-hmm. You know, I I deal with people, and I say this often, I'm so glad that I do not have depression on top of this. I can't even imagine. I think depression is the most insidious, challenging disease there is because you're literally at war with yourself. But if you are a person situationally or uh, clinically depressed, first of all, you should know, you don't have to be in that. You don't have to live in that reality. You can get help. There are people out there who will help you. That's the first thing. And, and we're not speaking, um, you know, flippantly about it. It is a real thing. I completely understand. Um, but if it is possible for you to not be angry as much about your condition, I know somebody in, um, and actually I know many people in support groups Who spend their time being angry. I hate my body. I hate this reality. I want it to be over. I'm Mm. sick of this. I can't do it anymore. Your energy is going into that uh, self devastation. You're going to have to put energy somewhere. Why not try to put energy into acceptance and simply being open? to where this new road will take you because you might be very surprised. And I know this podcast is, it is to empower entrepreneurs, but we do have an overlap of personal issues as well. And a lot of that has to do with mindset. And a lot of that has to do with self-sabotage or motivation or quote unquote imposter syndrome. Well, how can I work when I do most of my work from the couch or I'm in pajama pants or I'm whatever. It doesn't matter. As long as you're showing up, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. Um, so I think it's just amazing. And this has been an incredibly powerful conversation with you today. I knew it would be, I knew it would be, but then you just blew that right out of the water. Like, Uh. no, we're going for it. And this is what, (laughs) um, Goals for the future. What do you have planned? Yeah, well, just before I, I tell you my goals for the future, one thing I'd love to talk about, just add for that
1: coming up from pain and that acceptance is service to others. I mean, what has helped me feel so privileged in my life, despite the fact that I have very serious impairments and I have a, what someone say a very bleak future in front of me, is understanding how fortunate I am compared to Women and children, especially in the developing countries, in the poorest countries of the world who live with disabilities. And obviously, most people won't have the amazing lifetime opportunities that I have had to go to Angola or Haiti or Madagascar or Thailand and see the poorest of the poor and how they suffer. But you can go to your local soup kitchen. You can go to a local charity or an after-school program and help children who are really suffering and read with them or serve meals. And when you take your... Time and give it to someone else, and t- get yourself out of your own head and do something. It will fill you up and heal you in so many amazing ways, and that's really a powerful way to come out from your pain. But for future goals, I mean, um, to raise awareness and shatter stigma and discrimination against people with disabilities, I, I gotta talk. Right? It's I-, mm-hmm. I enjoy public speaking. I try to get the word out. I use social media, and so. And I love adventure. I love travels. When I came to the United States, um, I came here to Chestnut Horse Park in 2014, said, Hey, I want to shatter Sigmund's discrimination about people with disabilities and cross the Grand Canyon from rim to rim. And they looked at me like, Are you insane? Mm -hmm. Uh, But this has been an expedition in the planning. And next spring, I will attempt a 12 day expedition. 3 days horseback riding starting on the north rim extending to a 6000 foot descent into the canyon riding for another 2 days on horseback uh, to reach the inner gorge and then raft on the largest whitewater rafted uh, rapids in the in the United States which is the Colorado River another 8 days raft 150 miles and we are making this into a motion picture where we've taken that ugly disease HIBM hereditary inclusion Body myopathy and redefined it. We are redefining this disease into her inescapable brave mission. So this this is what's got me busy these days.
0: Unbelievable, um, unbelievable strength. You know, and you may not recognize it about yourself because it's just ho- it's so holistic, it's so organic to who you are living this way. For the rest of us listening, for the rest of us paying attention that you are redefining this disease in the midst of redefining your future. It is really incredibly inspiring. Where can people reach you? Thank you. Um, They
1: can follow me on Facebook where I have a page called H.I.B.M., Her Inescapable Brave Mission. Uh, You can also check me out on my website, which is www.princessrising.com. There's a way to contact me there. Then also social media and LinkedIn, you can get in touch with me, with my full name, Cara Elizabeth Khan.
0: Phenomenal, phenomenal, powerful conversation. Um, Thank you so much for being on our show today and for sharing your incredible perspective. Um, You're helping so many people. It was just a true honor. Thank you for having me. And
1: uh, everybody stay positive. Reach out if you need some help.
0: Absolutely incredible conversation today with Kara Khan, who is healing herself and so many others from a multitude of places, working from her heart centered mission. You do not want to miss uh, this podcast. I was blown away. Meeting Cara prior, I knew that it would be incredible, but this was just amazing. And I know I say that a lot, but I really, really mean it. Uh, This was episode five of the Sick Biz Buzz podcast, the sickest podcast for disabled and chronically ill entrepreneurs. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Hillary Jastrom. Please subscribe to Sick Biz Buzz, wherever you can find podcasts, and uh, also reach out if you need anything sickbizco at gmail.com and as always you can find us at sickbiz.com for motivation inspiration hacks hopes and resources for chronically ill and disabled entrepreneurs thanks so much for listening be well